0: America's greatest, biggest holiday is coming up in five days. The the etymology holiday, of course, speaks to a holy day. Holy meaning set apart for special purposes. I'm speaking, of course, of the holiday, not of Thanksgiving, that's in four days. The holiday of Black Friday. America's greatest holiday holiday. There will be something like worship going on on Black Friday. And although it seems to have died down over the last couple of years, there will still be, there will be a sort of liturgy. There will be a sort of giving of people's selves to things in worship, in longing, in their affections being turned to certain items getting stuff that we already have. (laughs) We already have a TV, perhaps, but we need a better TV. We already have a phone. Yours is probably perfectly fine, but you probably feel at least sometimes that you need a better one with more better technology, with cooler apps, with better cameras. And on and on and on it goes. Really, we could say Black Friday could be considered a microcosm of our lives as Americans. Do you feel this tugging within your own heart for something better? There's got to be something better. You, you, you perhaps want a better car or a better home. You want a better job. You want a better life. You want better relationships. There is a, a consistent longing for something better. Even those who aren't Christians, who are a part of our culture, recognize this longing for something better. I read an article recently in Psychology Psychology Today called The Search for Happiness. And in it, the, the author says, when we declare ourselves content with what we have and who we are, then we can beat the addiction of waiting to be happy. We can live quite happily in the now. Interesting. He also says this, the same author, Until you give up the idea that happiness is somewhere else, it will never be where you are. I would want to change that, of course. And I would say, until you give up the idea that happiness is somewhere other than Christ himself, it will never be where you are. This longing for the better finds its termination, its end, in the person of Jesus Christ. And until you understand that, you won't begin to have the sort of contentment and joy which you long for. Now, I have no doubt that solutions such that this article gives may give people a sort of a sense of contentment. Seeking to be content in what you already have. Those who aren't treasuring Christ, those who haven't placed their faith in Christ can have a sort of contentment in this life. And yet I will maintain that it will not compare to the joy that one has in Jesus Christ. The theme of our message this morning is Jesus is better. You could say Jesus is superior. Jesus is greater. We've been seeing that throughout John. Have you noticed This theme of the superiority of Christ in all things. We saw it at the beginning of the book, in the prologue, John chapter 1, where Jesus is compared to Moses. You think Moses is great, he came bringing the law, but Jesus has come and given grace and truth. He is the one who explains who God is. He is the one who has described perfectly the character of God we saw at the beginning of chapter 3 chapter 2 the wedding at Cana this miracle where John where Jesus creates this water this wine out of water Jesus brings the best wine Jesus brings this new age of joy and abundance he is the Messiah who is ushering in this messianic age of joy in him Also in chapter 2, he's greater than the temple. He is superior to the temple that the Jews had. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He was speaking of the temple of his body. He replaces the temple. In him, the fullness of deity dwells. In chapter 3, we see he offers a greater birth than just natural birth. He offers birth By the Holy Spirit, you must be born again. And this is accomplished only as the Son of God is lifted up on the cross. As he dies for sinners and is raised from the dead and then pours out his Spirit on others. And here we see that Jesus is greater than John, this prophet in the wilderness. He offers a baptism better than John's. He is greater than John. He is superior to John. And so this is what we see in the rest of chapter 3, that Jesus is superior. I just have two main points this morning. The first is John's final witness to Jesus. This is what we see in verses 22 to 30. We've already seen that John has borne witness to Jesus, and yet he gets an opportunity here to speak one more time of Jesus, to to bear witness one more time of who Jesus is. And we see that John's final witness to Jesus is that Jesus is superior to John. He is greater. He gets the opportunity because his disciples, who were baptizing, saw Jesus' disciples' baptism. There was this discussion or argument which arose from John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And so they come to John And they let him know what's going on. Rabbi, this one who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And I think it's right that we see this in a sort of resentfulness. They, in at least some sense, see themselves as competitors to Jesus and his disciples. They had all these crowds of people coming to them for baptizing baptism repentance and now their crowd while still substantial is shrinking in comparison to the crowd that jesus is drawing look this one that you bore witness to he's he's taking all of our followers he's taking everybody that was coming to us people are going to him and this gives john an opportunity once again to bear witness to jesus Look at how he responds. As Lindsay read in verse 27, the first thing John says is, "A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven." There's some discussion about who is he referring to here. What what is the person? Who is the person, and what is the gift that he gives? Some have said that it is uh, John who has received this. Particular role from Jesus. Everything that he has has been given to him from God. Others have seen this person as Jesus and those who are being given to him are these believers. These ones coming to him. They are given to him by God. John puts it in a general sort of principle though. So I think we could see it as applying to both of them. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John's role has been given him from heaven. Those who are being given to Jesus are given from God Himself. And John goes on, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ. He says, I've already borne witness. I've already told you this. I am not the Christ. That is the Messiah. That is the One whom was promised from the prophets long ago. Remember, they said one is coming who will Usher in the kingdom of God. I've already borne witness that this is him. He is the Christ. I am not the Christ. This is the first uh, aspect, we could say, of John's final witness to Jesus. He is the Christ. I am just the one who has come before him. I am nothing. I am just a witness. John's final witness to Jesus is that he is the Christ, but also in, in He goes on further to try to describe to them, to try to bear witness about who Jesus is. And so he gives them an analogy, an illustration. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He is the Christ and he is the groom. He, John would have been well aware of the pictures in the Old Testament, in Hosea and I, Isaiah and other places, where God's people, Israel, is pictured as a bride to God. They are wedded together in this relationship. And here, John is pointing to those people who are coming to Jesus as a part of the people of God. As those who have come to him being wedded to Jesus, Jesus is the groom and what is the role of the groom's friend in all of this i've been a part of weddings before i've even had the opportunity to be a best man which might be as close as we could get to what john is describing here i was the best man in my brother's wedding and so i I enjoyed the ceremony i enjoyed being part of all the festivities And my joy was complete when I saw it all go off without a hitch. My joy was complete when my brother Luke saw his bride coming in. To see the joy on his face. I I believe, of course, most people's eyes are turned to the bride in that moment. But I believe I was looking at my brother. And it filled me with joy to see him make vows to his bride. Become wedded to his bride. The person John is speaking of himself being the the friend of the groom would be one who would have been in control of all the services, all the ceremonies. He would have been the one who organized everything. And so there would be this added pressure of everything going off without a hitch, seeing the groom take his bride. And he was content in this. It's not the way it normally works. Think about when you were in school and there were tryouts for plays or musicals. Any of you ever try out for a musical? There wasn't always much competition to be a tree or a bush. Where was the competition? It was to be who could take the leading role, who could be good enough to take the spotlight in the musical, in the school play. Who could be the lead, not who could be the supporting actress, the supporting friend. And yet, what do we see here? That this is what brings John joy, ultimately. Not being in the spotlight himself, but shining the spotlight on the groom. Shining the spotlight on the Messiah, the one who has come to make all things right. He is the groom. John's conclusion. Not only is he the Christ, he's the groom. He must increase but I must decrease. He must increase in His ministry, in His work, in gaining followers. I must decrease. I must fade away from the scene into the background. Fade away from people's memories so that Christ would be exalted. And these, the last words of John, He does fade out from the scene. Notice He He has joy in both his role and in his decrease. He has joy in the role that God had given him in this specific time, not to be at the forefront, not to be in the spotlight, but to be a supporter, to be one pointing to the Christ. And he had joy in his decrease. Not only in his decrease, but in the increase of Christ. Consider how that is often the reverse of how we think. It's the, almost the exact opposite of how we think about our own lives. What is it that will bring you joy? It is increase, right? That's what we think. It's Increase will bring you joy. We think we need more or better, as we mentioned at the beginning of this, the sermon. What is it that you need? You need an increase in, in pleasure. You need an increase in your possessions. You need an increase in your wealth, if you just had a little more money, then if you had that increase, then it would bring true joy to you. Of course, you've heard stories. I read one not long ago about the man who won $50 million in the lottery. Would that make you happy? It ruined his life. And you think, well, I don't want $50 million. I just want $500 more a month. Maybe that would be. Well, then you're just, you're just talking about Numbers and ranges. The substance of it is that these things, these increases will not give you joy. Think about the context in which you think increase will give you joy. In your work, you, you, you desire increase in your reputation, that others would think highly of you, that they would think that you are able to do your work well, that you're very competent. What about in your relationships? Increase. You want others to serve you, perhaps. You want them to think highly of them. You want them to contribute to your well-being. We could even think of it in terms of our church together. What is it that will give us joy as a church? Increase in numbers? What What if we look at a church down the road and they're being faithful to preach the gospel... And would we be then resentful? Would we be like John's disciples here? Resentful that they are, they're gaining a crowd while we're, we're staying at about the same. We tend to think that increase is where our joy will be. And that is true to an extent. If your joy is in your own status, if your joy is in your own rank, then more joy will come to you only with your individual increase. But if your joy is in Christ, if your your joy is centered upon Jesus Christ, then more joy comes only with the increase of Christ. Consider how this works out in your life. Consider how this works out in your work. How it works out In your marriage, is this your motto? Like John says, I must decrease, but Christ must increase. In a marriage situation, that wouldn't mean I must decrease and the other person must increase. It means we both must decrease and Christ must increase in our own affections, in our own desires, in what it is that we want. Christ must increase in our family. Otherwise, we're we're waging war against one another. We're waging war because our desires are are what we want. Our desires have the top priority. He must increase. But I must decrease. And consider this also. We might look at this as a duty. I must decrease. As if John had kind of resentfully said, yes, I must decrease. Unfortunately, I must decrease decrease he must increase this is just the way that it is this is the way god has designed it this is my duty to decrease but notice for john it wasn't merely a duty which he had to perform he did this for his ultimate joy there was something in it for him it was joy for him to see christ exalted and lifted up it was joy for him to be decreased in order that christ would be exalted And this happens, brothers and sisters, only by regeneration of the Holy Spirit. Only by God giving a person a new heart. Only by changing a person from the inside out does this happen. Only then does a person begin to find joy in their own decrease that Jesus Christ would be exalted. Is that true of you, friends? Has that change been made in your heart where you can have real joy in being decreased in order that you would see Christ exalted? This is the way to true joy. It will not come with with Black Friday. It will not come with you trying to increase yourself. It will not come with you trying to increase your possessions or your pleasure or anything else like that. It will only come as Jesus Christ is exalted. This is John's final witness to Jesus. That Jesus is superior to John and that, that is where true joy is found. Well, In verses 31 to 36, the author then begins summarizing chapter 3 and John's witness as well. So it's a, it's a change in speaker from John, the witness, I would call him, to John, the author of the book. And his point is much the same as John the witness. The superiority of Jesus. First point is John's final witness to Jesus is that Jesus is superior to John. The second point is that Jesus is superior over all. Not just John. Over all. You see this a couple of times in the text. He is above all. He is superior. In verse 31... And also at the end of 31, he comes from heaven. He who comes from heaven is above all. John the author's purpose is that we would see Jesus' superiority not only to John, but over all. And he points out uh, a few reasons why this is the case. Why must Jesus increase? Why must he be exalted? Because he is superior. Because this is who he is. In Jesus gaining increase, he is not being made something that he is not already. Rather, he is being recognized for what he truly is. The highly exalted one. Why is he superior over all? First, because he is from heaven. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. There's a contrast here of John who is of the earth or from the earth and Jesus who is from above. It's a contrast between Jesus and all of us. We are of the earth and Jesus is from above. It's amazing how our culture wants to hear something from beyond this life. You could get that perhaps from those who try to consult with mediums, to try to supposedly hear from the dead, those who have gone past this life. And then Christians sometimes have a a spiritual spin to it near-death experiences where someone has gone to heaven and come back to tell their story. And in the past 10 years, this has been an exciting sort of movement within the Christian publishing industry. In 2010, there were two books in particular that came out and made a huge splash throughout the culture. They were on the bestsellers list for weeks and weeks. One, of course, was Heaven is for Real. And the other was I believe it was called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. However, I read recently that uh, Alex Malarkey, uh, one of the co-authors of the second book, has, has come out and said, this was all false. It wasn't true. He had a certain pressure put on him to tell a certain story. But consider how eager our culture is to hear about these people who have gone to heaven and then come back and tell us about angels, tell us about Jesus, tell us about all the things that you saw. There's an eagerness and excitement to hear about someone who has been on the other side of death and come back to tell their story. And often, the people were even more eager to hear from children, expecting, well, they wouldn't make this up. They wouldn't tell lies. They They wouldn't do this. They would tell us the truth. Well, how interesting is it that the one who actually has been to heaven the one who actually came from heaven Jesus himself the eternal son of God who has always been in relationship with the father from all eternity he comes down from heaven and what is the testimony no one believes his testimony we wouldn't hear it we have rejected it the author is circling back around to this idea that the light has come into the world and the world has rejected Jesus This is true of every one of us by our own nature, by our own wills, by our own hearts. We have not believed his testimony. Although he is from heaven, we have rejected his testimony. And yet by his grace, by his sheer grace, some of you sitting here today have received that testimony. By God creating faith in your heart to trust him. And so the author speaks of those who have received his testimony. No one receives his testimony, but whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. This also demonstrates the superiority of Jesus. Not only is he from heaven, he also vindicates the truthfulness of God. He vindicates the truthfulness of God. Well, how does He do that? Well, God had made a promise throughout Scripture that He would send one, a Messiah, who would bring the kingdom of God to earth. He would come and He would rescue His people from their sins. He would save His people from their sins. And Jesus vindicates this promise of God. For, the author says, here's how those who come to him confirm the truth, truthfulness of God. For he whom God has sent, this Messiah, Jesus, he utters the very words of God. And he gives the Spirit without measure. This is the one God has sent. And those who come to Him in faith receiving His testimony confirm this is the very Son of God who utters the words of God. He speaks the words of God. And He has the Spirit without measure. If you have some sort of resource that is scarce, you're careful with it. You you maybe distribute it little by little. You measure it out precisely to make sure none of it is going to waste. But What happens if you have enduring resource you can give it away freely you can give it liberally and he has given the father has given the spirit to the son without measure not that the spirit is some sort of substance to be distributed out yet the author is describing jesus as one in whom the full deity of god dwells the fullness of the spirit is in jesus christ He vindicates the truthfulness of God to those who come to Him in faith. And finally, notice this. He is the dividing line between life and death. Jesus is superior. He's from heaven. He vindicates the truthfulness of God and He is the dividing line between life and death. Or we could say between life life and wrath. That's that's the, the contrast that the author makes. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand, even the determination between those who have eternal life and those who have the wrath of God remaining upon them. You see that in verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Jesus is the dividing line between life and death. He's the one who determines where a person go, how a person is received by God, or whether God's anger rests upon him. Perhaps it's a light illustration, but I think of the sorting hat in the, the Harry Potter books. The, the students come up to the front of, of the room, this huge banquet hall, and the sorting hat, which is... Kind of like a person. It's a magical hat. It's alive. It rests on their head. And he determines, based on their character, based on their personality, based on some sort of foresight that the hat has which branch of the school they go to. Hufflepuff or Slytherin, Gryffindor. Walks up and that hat is the dividing line. Separates. Places. Individuals. Here or there. Jesus is the one who determines whether or not you have life or whether or not you rest under the wrath of God. Jesus is the, the, the saw blade coming through the wood and it parts in the middle, some to eternal life and some to wrath and eternal death. Notice, friends, the, the life that you have. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, not will have, but you have it here in the presence, a taste of the kingdom of God, a taste of the abundant life that you will have as you receive Jesus Christ and have joy, your joy fixed firmly in Him. But the reverse is true also. But the wrath of God, not will come at a future time, not... Get ready because it will come on you. The wrath of God remains on those who reject Him. It remains on you presently. We talked about this some last week. This is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a holy God. Wrath refers, of course, to God's anger over sin. Wrath reminds us that none of us are simply neutral beings with God. We're not innocent beings with God. We have sinned in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, every day of our lives. As soon as we were able to choose right from wrong, we chose the wrong. We chose to sin against our mother and father. We chose to sin against our brother and sister. We choose to sin every day. And by this, unbelievers are storing up, storing up the wrath of God against them. But there is good news. Brothers and sisters, aren't you glad there is good news? That there is rescue from the wrath of God that we all deserve? On October 27th, not long ago, Robert Bowers was wheeled into the Allegheny General Hospital after shooting and killing 11 Jews in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And as he was wheeled in, he was yelling, Death to all Jews! The doctors and nurses treated him, cared for him, displayed great generosity to him, One of those nurses was named Ari Mahler, who also happened to be a Jewish nurse. I can't say what I I would have felt like doing in the moment, the anger I would have felt, the perhaps hatred I would have felt towards him, and yet this man also treated him with kindness, with love. He displayed love to this one who had just murdered people like him because of their ethnic background, because of their religious background. In later interviews, he said love was why he did it. He said love as an action is more powerful than words, and love in the face of evil gives hope to others. Love in the face of evil. In the next sentence, I will part ways with Ari Mahler because he says, Love demonstrates humanity. And I would change that to say that Ari Mahler unwittingly actually demonstrated divinity. He showed us the kind of love God demonstrates to those who deserve his wrath. As we read, For God so loved the world, this sinful, rebellious world. God so loved this world shrouded in darkness. God so loved the world He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Remember last week, we talked about magnifying the love of God. God's glory is demonstrated in His wrath but it is also demonstrated beautifully in His amazing love for those who have rejected Him. Philippians 2 reminds us that we ought to have this sort of mindset within ourselves. We ought to consider others as more important than ourselves, that we ought to look out for others instead of ourselves. He says, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, clung to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. This is where our joy comes, brothers and sisters. God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and to the joy of all God's people. Amen. Jesus is superior to John Jesus is superior over all things and in Him is where your joy will be found. Let us pray.